But tonight, we're going to focus on the first two centuries A.D., okay? It's the first half of the patristic period. It was during this time, the first two centuries, that there were two main attacks against God's word and against God's people, his church. These two issues will be our topics for the coming weeks. The two great opponents, and there may be more, but I would argue that most of the opponents to the gospel, to the growth of the church, to Christ, kind of fall in these two camps. The two great opponents that we're going to be discussing is, number one, persecution. All right, so suffering, affliction, persecution. And the second is false teaching, or false teachers, or false gospels, or heresies. And the way we combat it is by faithfulness to the text and preaching the true gospel. These are the two great opponents that has been the opponents of the gospel in Christ since the beginning. A couple weeks ago, we gave a brief overview of what New Testament books were accepted by whom and when. We have seen an overview of the reliability of the New Testament, specifically during the time it was being written from the early 40s to the mid-90s. And we're going to pick up tonight in that same time period, all right? So basically, we're going to start with Christ, we're going to go to the end of the second century, and look at how God preserved his word and his church in the midst of great affliction, and in the midst of, midst of many false gospels. The best way to approach this is not to, um, over the next three weeks, take like a topic of false gospels and, and deal with that, and then take the topic of persecution, but it's rather that we go chronologically. It's just going to make more, more sense, and you're going to see how God was working in the span of time. So let's begin. All throughout the New Testament, you can see that there was persecution for Christians. You see this, Paul is not shy about it. We're going to talk about it in a number of weeks in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You see it in Paul's writings, you see it in Luke, and and his explanation, you see it in Matthew, all the Gospels, you see it in Acts, great persecution, which we're going to look at here in a second. You see like a a foretelling, foretelling, a foreshadowing, a warning against future persecutions. You see that there were plenty of dangers even in the New Testament period as these letters were being written about false gospels, false teachers exposing these things. I think sometimes when we go to the Word of God we read today, we're we're immediately concerned with, with how does this impact my world today? Now, that is absolutely necessary in personal study. It should absolutely include how does this affect my world today? But one of the best ways we can know how it affects our world today through correct hermeneutics or interpretation of Scripture is by understanding what was taking place when it was being written. And when you can understand the culture and the issues surrounding these letters, these Gospels, what is being written, you have a better understanding of what was the core issue, the main point being driven home. What was Paul trying to say, and what is he saying to us today? What was Jesus saying here? What was Luke recording here? And so it's important that when we go to the study, and hopefully tonight will give us a great opportunity to see that, that we understand what is actually being happened. I think your, your mind's going to be blown when we see some of these things. What we see in the New Testament is absolutely amazing. It's stunning. And again, what's so cool is we spent five weeks saying, this is reliable. (laughs) This is the most reliable, the New Testament, not the Old Testament, but the the Old Testament is one of the most reliable works. But the New Testament is even more reliable than the Old Testament when it comes to manuscripts and when it comes to um, witnesses and things of the like. The New Testament affirms greatly the entire Old Testament. But we talked about last week, this happened. 
Right, and now tonight we can say, okay, this is the most reliable work of antiquity in the world. So now let's see, historically, more so than Roman history, Greek history. So that being the case, we can read this and know that these events took place. Therefore, what is happening? What we find is amazing. You look first at Christ and the apostles. That they have laid for us a foundation. They've given us the example of how to live, how to preach, how to teach, how to endure. They are the model. Ephesians tells us that the church was built on the prophets and the apostles. Christ himself was what? The church is built on the prophets and the apostles. Built on whom? Christ who is the cornerstone. Think about this. Think about this. If the two biggest dangers have always been persecution and false gospels, then what did our Lord and apostles do and how did they handle these things? You think back to the garden. Satan preached to even Adam a false gospel. And then they suffered. If you look at Christ before his ministry began, 40 days, fasting, right? And who comes to him and tests him? In fact, who who was it? Satan. And who brought Jesus to the desert to be tempted? God! The Holy Spirit led him. He's weak. He's suffering. He's in affliction. And Satan does what? He teaches. He tries to preach. He tries to convince Jesus of what? A false gospel. So this is happening all the way through. But what did our Lord and the apostles do? They exposed false gospels. They taught the truth. They were radical. They lived in such a way that glorified God. They died in such a way that glorified God. They are our example. We ought to look to the Lord. Look to the apostles as the example of how we ought to live. We see how they stood against heresies in their letters and teachings like Paul did in Colossae dealing with the Gnostics. Like Paul did in Galatians when he was calling out the Judaizers. You're not saved by works. And then you see also in the New Testament and in great church history letters how these men died. Look at Jesus first and foremost as we begin. Jesus, our master, our teacher, the second Adam, the perfect righteousness. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, persecution, false gospels. In Matthew 6, 18, Persecution, false gospels, but God's preserving his word, preserving his church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus told his disciples, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, as John Fox says, Christ will have a church in this world. We see this according to Matthew 16, 18. Christ will have a church. His bride will exist. Number two, his church will be mightily attacked. It will be. But number three, none of the devil's attacks will destroy it. Jesus tells us from the very very beginning, the establishment of the church, hey, there will be attacks. Nothing will overcome it because I will build my church. I will preserve it. In other words, as John, or um, this truth has come to fruition in every century. Think about it. The word of God in his church has been preserved. First century, second century, third century, fourth century, Middle Ages, Reformation, all the way up into the modern era. It will continue to thrive and multiply and succeed. You know, that's, that's the thing that we, we, we forget sometimes. There's so much evil. There's so much war. There's so much hatred. Where is God? 
God is more victorious today on the world than he ever has been in the sense that more people are being won for Christ. Christ is victorious. He is ruling. He is reigning right now. He's winning the battle. Satan is not. We're just blinded sometimes to these truths. We're going to show this even more. This ought to give us great boldness and great confidence. You see this immediately in the authors of the New Testament and the apostles, the disciples. If you look at Acts, Stephen was the first martyr, the first one to lay down his life. And just before he's stoned to death, what does he do? He preaches the gospel. And then he's stoned. Immediately after this, a great persecution broke out and 2,000 believers were converted. James was the next to be executed under Herod. And then in AD 54, Philip was scourged, he was thrown into prison, and he was crucified. Next, you have historical accounts that tell us that Matthew was pinned to the ground and beheaded in 60. Then James, the brother of Jesus, around 66, was killed when he was cast down from the temple tower. We understand again, according to church history, that the fall did not kill him. So they smashed his head in with the fuller's club like a hammer. Matthias, who replaced Judas, was stoned and beheaded for preaching the gospel. Andrew, for preaching the gospel, was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Mark was dragged to death. And it's believed as he was dragged, his body was dismembered after preaching against idols in Alexandria. Peter, crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded, both for preaching the gospel and exposing false gospels. Jude, the other brother of Jesus, was crucified. Bartholomew, who was, pu- who was preaching in several countries, and Bartholomew actually translated the gospel of Matthew into the language of East Indian, where he was a missionary. He, went, he learned the language and translated Matthew into East Indian. And while he was teaching in this country that he goes to bring the gospel to, his pagan enemies cruelly beat him and crucified him. Thomas, while preaching the gospel in India, was tortured by angry pagans. He was run through with spears and thrown in the flames of an oven. Luke was believed to be killed by being hung on an olive tree in Athens. John was the only apostle who was able to escape without a violent death. And yet he suffered and was persecuted. However, what's amazing, through all of this violence... All this torture, all of this death, the word of God and history tells us the Lord was adding to the church daily. (laughs) You've taken Christ, the cornerstone, and the apostles whom the church is built on. They're all murdered except for John. They're all persecuted. They're all gone. And the church is increasing. It's being added to. John Fox says it this way. The church, now deeply rooted in the doctrine of the apostles, and watered abundantly with the blood of the saints, was prepared for the cruel persecutions that were to come. The apostles in Christ were examples. The first Christians were first century Jews. So during this time, between Christ's death In John's exile and then later dying, you have these first century Christians who were first century Jews at first. They had heard and received the message. According to Romans 3, they received the oracles of God. 
And their faith was spreading, and eventually the Gentiles were welcomed into the promise, even though they were not born of the seed. Amen, right? This is a common discussion in much of Paul's letters. If you look at Galatians, Ephesians, Romans, they all discuss thoroughly this inclusion of the Gentiles. Paul was sent to be a missionary to whom? The Gentiles. You see this begin to happen. In Acts chapter 11, there was a scattering, like I mentioned, after Stephen's, Stephen's martyrdom. The word now is being spread among uh, only Jews at this time, Acts 11 tells us. Pe- but people were being added to the kingdom. Paul and Barnabas ended up going to Antioch for a year. They were teaching many people. And it was here in Acts that we find in, in Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were, that the disciples were first called Christians. The first time this word comes into existence. They were known as men of the way. You see in the record of Acts that persecution during this time was rising. It was during this time that James was killed under Herod, as we mentioned. Many other Christians. Peter was imprisoned as well as others. But throughout all this persecution, Acts 12, 24 says the word of God increased and multiplied. In the midst of all this persecution, Acts 12, 24 tells us the word of God increased and multiplied. More persecution. Acts 14. Paul stoned at Lystra. You guys know the story. He's taken outside the city where he was left. He was believed to be dead. He was stoned so badly. And what happens? Disciples, Christians in this area came and gathered around him. He rose up and goes right back into the city. Leaves the next day, moves on to Derby, preached the gospel, and came right back to Lystra again. It was during this time that they were appointing elders in every church. Now, we're going to talk about this later. But you see in Acts here that on this trip, on this mission, they're going and they're appointing elders in these cities, in these churches. Multiplicity of elders. Many men are being enlisted. You ask yourself, why? Well, one of the reasons why is, number one, the church is increasing massively. It's multiplying. There are plenty of flocks. There are plenty of churches in different areas. If you look at Ephesus alone, you have... Uh, Philemon, you have Onesimus, and you have Timothy, right? So all these people are increasing. They have churches, but also because persecution is being broken, broken out. It's commencing. And they're going after first, as you're going to see in a little bit, leaders, elders, bishops. So they have multiple elders so that if one dies, they have more in place. The gospel they were preaching was one that proclaimed that the God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles as well and to the Jews You're saved by faith in Christ. Many conversions were taking place. Acts 15 shows us that there's tension, though. There's tension between Jews and Gentiles. The inclusion of those that were not born of the seed was not popular among the Jews. You even see disagreement among missionaries. Paul and Barnabas, at the end of Acts 15, they departed from each other, but both continuing mission work. You see more persecution in Acts 16, Paul and Silas placed in prison. Acts 19, while Paul was in Ephesus, riots broke out. It's interesting. The Acts 19 account of the riots that broke out in Ephesus are interesting. What you have is you have these men who are upset. Anybody remember why they were upset? They were silversmiths. They were the ones who made the silver shrines of false gods in Ephesus. Paul is speaking out against these gods... People are being converted. He's saying the gods that you worship are made by hands and they're not true gods. All of a sudden, the money isn't coming in for those who are making these false gods and these shrines. 
And they have a fear of a lack of increase, fear of a lack of their profession increasing. They begin to say and preach to the people, hey, we're in danger of, you know, upsetting the gods. Even the great Artemis, we need to oppose these people. People began to be outraged at this gospel being preached by Paul. The whole city was filled with confusion. They go to the theater. In fact, they said many of the people in the theater didn't even know why they were there. Just let's follow the confused crowd. (laughs) Uproar ceases. The mission continues. In Acts 21, Paul is arrested in the temple. It was at this point, for only be a couple of years now, where both Peter and Paul would be killed. This is the account of the apostles. This is the account of Jesus. This is how they lived, how they died. There's much more to be said there. But what you, what you notice is that these dangers have not ceased since the first century. Things haven't changed. We're, we're dealing with the same things today. It's been the same thing in every generation. Now, we don't have the massive persecution in America today, but we do have the masses, massive issue of false gospels in America today. In fact, I would argue that the greatest persecution today, 2017, is happening outside of America. But some of the greatest false gospels are being taught in America. And you have to understand, they're both dangerous Satan uses both, but God uses both to purify what Satan intended for evil, God is using for good. So you may say, oh, you know, we're just experiencing persecution like the world, we don't understand. Well, you're right in the midst of something that God has called you to purify. False gospels at every corner in every city are being preached. And we're called, like our Lord and like the apostles, to expose them and preach the truth. Yeah, but it's not necessarily loving sometimes. Did you? Jesus was radical. The apostles. Paul walks up into Galatians and says, Who bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? I mean, talk about intensity. By the way, it is not loving to soften the blow of truth, which will lead people to an eternity in hell. It is loving to speak the truth in love, with compassion, Praying that God would open eyes, grant them repentance, they may come to knowledge of the truth. It's loving. Uh, Who cares if people are offended in a tiny bit if we have the right motive to restore them to joy and they're saved? But if we dance around the truth and we dance around our comforts and I just, it's not worth necessarily getting into or it's exhausting, you poor thing. We're just allowing people to go unreached, unpreached, straight. To hell. As we continue to see though. God in his providence. Has always and will continue to always. Please. Please hear this. God has always used in his providence. Persecution. And false gospels. To purify. To preserve. And to increase his people. Notice this. Through false gospels, not people responding to the false gospels, right? So you understand what I'm saying? Through false gospels, God purifies those who are sheep and those who are wolves. He purifies his people. Through false gospels, he's preserving the real truth from false gospels. When false gospels are being preached and it's the attack of the enemy, God's people are actually increasing because they know the truth. My sheep hear my voice and they come to me. You do not come to me because you are not among my sheep. Then you have persecution. Persecution as well as we're going to see at the end of tonight. Purifies God's people. 
persecution will also preserve the word of God. Men are willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel for the word of God. Persecution also increases God's people. You see this in the New Testament. What happens when false gospels and persecution is happening and the Lord added to them daily? And the church increased and multiplied. It's powerful. Why do you think, why do you think the Bible says to rejoice in suffering? Because God is accomplishing His purpose. Suffering is first and foremost about God accomplishing His purpose to purify and preserve and increase His people. Now, it was during this time that there was a growing distinction between Judaism and Christianity. This is important in the context of history of why persecution came out about to be beginning in the late, really heavy stuff, middle to late first century. There were Jews who rejected Christ, and they were making themselves separate from Christians. Christians were also separating themselves from the Jews. Now, Rome caught on to this, began to become aware of the fact that Christianity was quite a different religion than Judaism. So this separation of the Jews and the Christians ended up being one of the main roots for what would become two and a half centuries of persecution by the Roman Empire. This lasted from the reign of Nero all the way through the conversion of Constantine. Now you you look at the Roman authorities, and the Roman authorities had respected in a civil sense, this is important, they had respected in a civil sense the Jewish faith. They were okay with the Jews withholding practices of worship to the Romans' God, but once it became clear that not all Christians were Jews, and that this new religion was spreading throughout the empire, now the authorities demanded that Christians show their loyalty by worshiping the emperor. Now you may ask, that doesn't make any sense. Why would the Roman authorities be okay civilly with the Jews abstaining from Roman worship, but not the Christians? They're they're both doing it for religious reasons. We worship a different God. But why were the Jews allowed to do it, but the Christians not? Here's why. The Jews weren't multiplying. The Jews weren't influencing culture. They weren't affecting people. Christianity, however, is blowing up. And people are changing. And people are calling out false gospels. And the Romans are now going, this is different than the Jews because there's a stir happening. There's an increase happening in the numbers. They're now calling out false gods. The Jews didn't mess with us. Something's happening. Therefore, this could be an issue. They could influence and affect our gods, our empire, our culture. They need to be punished. Hence, Christianity began being persecuted. This is when Nero comes in the picture. You've probably heard of Nero. Nero was the emperor of Rome, became emperor on 54 AD. Ironically, Nero, though he's an idiot... I just want to use your terminology, Mike. Felt like I need to connect with you this evening. He was he was reasonable at first. Mike always tells me there's just one thing I can't handle: stupidity. <laughs> that was Nero. He was reasonable at first, but he became increasingly wicked as he grew in his desire for pleasure, for power, for grandeur. And within ten years of his reign, the general population of Rome hated him. It wasn't just Christians; the Romans hated Nero. Rumors began circulating in the Roman Empire that he was insane. He's mad. He's gone mad. 
Now, on June 18, 64, 10 years into his reign, a crucial event takes place that you should know. Remember what happened? June 18, 64, what happens in Rome? A big old fire. A great fire breaks out in Rome. It appeared that Nero was several miles away from his home. So he gets word of the fire. He comes back and in his nobility and care, he opened up his gardens to the homeless as well as other public buildings. However, there were those that suspected that the emperor had actually ordered several sections of the city to be burned so that he could rebuild it to his own liking, to his own fancy. The fire lasted for six days and seven nights, continued to flare up for another three additional days. It was so massive that 10 of the 14 sections of the city were destroyed. It was a huge fire. It was a game changer in Rome. Now, Roman historians, notice I said Roman historians, not not Christians. Roman historians were split between whether or not Nero started the fire or it was an accident from an oil warehouse. There were rumors during the fire that Nero was seen atop a tower in Palatine dressed as an actor playing his lyre while singing about the destruction of Troy. (laughs) He's just like a weird dude. So suspicion is growing about Nero starting the fire. Nero is losing the popularity of the people, so he needed someone to blame. And two areas of the fire, or two areas of the city that were not destroyed in the fire had many, you guessed it, Jewish and Christian residents. Therefore, Nero placed the blame on whom? The Christians. According to Roman historian Tacitus, again, this is a Roman historian, Nero blamed the Christians because the Christians were already hated for their abominations. So he began to punish them with refined cruelty. In other words, if you confessed to being a Christian, you were arrested and then condemned. But what do you mean, abominations? What were the abominations, according to Rome and the authorities in Nero, that the Christians were committing? Well, again, according to Tacitus, again, he was not a Christian, and he hated Christians, by the way. He admitted that they were not being condemned for the fire, the Christians, but because they were haters of mankind. This is the abominations that the Christians, so-called, were committing. They're haters of mankind, is what the Christians were called. How does that make sense? This is why. The Christians would not participate in the Roman theater. The Christians would not participate in the army. The Christians would not participate in engaging in classic literature. The Christians would not participate in the games and sports. This is the culture of Rome. They weren't engaged in the culture of Rome. They were called the haters of mankind. But here's why the Christians weren't participate. All of these things were intertwined with pagan worship. The whole culture of Rome that did this, it was all associated with worshiping the Roman gods. So the Christians withdrew from this culture, withdrew from these practices because they would not worship false gods. And the Romans look at this and say, you're a hater of mankind. Tacitus tells us that Nero used the killings of these Christians. This is what started to happen. By the way, this is what we're going to get into just, uh, I, even I'm reading and studying over these things again. I'm rereading a couple books. My, my first seminary class I took was church, church history, and it dealt with persecutions, like the whole first bit. If you've ever read Fox's, ever, anybody ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? No, you should get that. I'm reading this, and you, you start reading these stories of persecution, the faithfulness, endurance, and stuff of, this, of these men and women, and you just, it's heavy. 
but you're emboldened, you're strengthened, and you, and you see life. And here's where we start seeing the sickness that is happening in these persecutions. As the Christians are being persecuted under Nero, what Nero would do is he would dress the Christians in furs to be killed by dogs. This was all to amuse people. He would have guests over to his garden, to his palace, and in the theater, and he would use Christians to amuse the people. So he'd dress them up in furs, bloody furs, and they'd be killed by dogs. Some are crucified. Others, when Nero would have garden parties and throw all these types of festivals so that people were amused by the killing Christians, he would use other Christians, put them on stakes, tie them or stab them, light them on fire, so that the Christians would light up the entire area in order for these festivals and festivities. It was actually during this time of persecution under Nero that Peter and Paul were killed. Again, I just remind you, this stuff happened. It's not just Christian history that shows this. Roman history, Greek history shows that these persecutions were happening. This is around 64 AD. Half of the New Testament hadn't been written yet. Alright? So now you start thinking about the letters that people are writing. Paul and Peter are are killed under this rule within a couple of years when Nero and the persecution began happening. Many people believe that Paul was killed during the year of the fire. And though at first they were killed for allegedly setting Rome on fire, they eventually, Christians, became persecuted just for simply being Christian. In 68, Nero was deposed by a group of rebels in Rome and ended up killing himself. Again, he was insane. Over the next year, Rome sat under four different emperors before finally, a year later, Domitian becomes emperor. It was during his reign that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD in Jerusalem. It was also during this time that Christians were accused of, check this out, Christians accused of being atheists. They were called atheists. Anybody know why? What is it, Zach? They worshipped an invisible God. The Romans had idols and shrines. But the Christians were worshipping an invisible God. Therefore, they were called atheists. They were also accused of incest. Anybody know why? Tell me, Zach. Because they called each other brothers and sisters. Even a man and wife would call each other brother or sister in Christ. Incest, they were accused of. They were also accused of cannibalism. Anybody know why? Other than Zach, he went through my youth class. But no, either accused of cannibalism, think about it. The Lord's Supper. They would participate in the eating the flesh and blood of Christ during the Lord's Supper. It was also during this time that John was exiled to Patmos during Domitian's reign, persecution. However, Domitian became quickly known as a tyrant, even among his own people. His enemies conspired against him, murdered him in his own palace. The Romans. And the Roman Senate then declared, because he was such a wicked man, the Roman Senate declared after their own emperor's death that his name should be erased from every inscription so there would be no memory of him in history. That's how much the Romans hated him and how wicked he was. This ends up closing out the first century and leads into a pretty brutal and bloody second century. It was during the second century that false gospels, especially the likes of Marcion and Gnosticism, began to increase. We'll talk about those in a moment. In 107, under the reign of Trajan, there's a man named Ignatius. Many of you may have heard the story of Ignatius. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch and was condemned to death. 
Now here's what's happened. Rome has just been mightily victorious in battle. They have a huge festival plan to celebrate their victory in Rome. So what they decide to do is in order to provide entertainment for the people, they're going to take Ignatius, who is accused of being a Christian, they're going to bring him all the way from Antioch to Rome, guarded by soldiers, brought there so that his death could be the entertainment during this festival. It was on his journey to Rome that Ignatius wrote seven letters, seven unbelievable letters. During this journey, many Christians would actually come up to him, soldiers leading him. This shows that the persecution was not a general widespread thing. You weren't, you weren't killed for being a Christian or persecuted for being a Christian. If somebody, if a, a pagan priest or an authority went and accused you of being a Christian and not following the Roman worship or law, then all of a sudden you were imprisoned. But Christians would come up and talk to Ignatius. And as they would do this, there began to be a, a number of letters that began being spread. Letters to Ignatius, letters from Ignatius. This is when the seven letters came. It was an outcome of the visits from these Christians. Churches in the local areas were sending delegates to go to Ignatius. Ignatius would send letters back in return. Now, here's what's really, really neat. Among one of the delegates was a bishop from, F, or a, a bishop from uh, Colossae. Originally, ended up being in Ephesus. So, the man's from Colossae, ends up being a bishop in Ephesus. And he comes as a delegate to Ignatius to speak to him. Any guesses who this man may have been? Again, this is beginning of the second century. The man's name was Onesimus. Now, what, have been, what do we know about Onesimus? Onesimus was whom? He was Philemon's slave. Philemon went and visited Paul in prison. Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. Philemon was an elder in Colossae. Paul sends a letter to Colossians with Onesimus and the letter Philemon in which Paul says, he was your slave, receive him as your brother. And now here we are, years later, and Onesimus, who was received as a brother, is the bishop from Ephesus who goes to visit Ignatius. Cool. Ignatius also sent a letter to the church in Smyrna as well to its bishop Polycarp. Polycarp is going to be an important person we're going to talk about here in a second. Polycarp was John's disciple. More on him in a second. So Ignatius, he's traveling. He gets word. He knows that he is going to be the entertainment for this military celebration. He, he knows he will be tortured. It will be lengthy. They're not just going to have him come behead him in front of all these people. This is going to be a spectacle. He will be made into a spectacle. He gets word from Christians who are coming and talking to him that there is a, a plan of Christians when he enters Rome to free him. You would think what? That's exciting. <laughs> I don't want to be a spectacle. If somebody can free me, sweet. Ignatius didn't think so. So what Ignatius does, Ignatius writes a letter and sends a letter ahead of him to the Christians in Rome. This is what he wrote. I fear your kindness, which may harm me. For you may be able to achieve what you plan, freeing him. But if you pay no heed to my request, it will be very difficult for me to attain unto God. He asks them not to free him, but to let him suffer and die. He asks them to pray not that he would be freed, but that he may have strength to face every trial that awaits him. He continues and says this, so that I may not only be called a Christian, 
but also behave as one, my love is crucified. I no longer savor corruptible food, but I wish to taste the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ and His blood that I wish to drink. It is an immortal drink. When I suffer, I shall be free in Jesus Christ, and with Him shall rise again in freedom. I am God's wheat to be ground by the teeth of beasts, so that I may be offered as a pure bread of Christ. If you remain silent about me, I shall become a very word of God. If you don't free me, if you remain silent about me, I will become a word of God. But if you allow yourselves to be swayed by the love in which you hold my flesh, I shall again be no more than just a human voice. Therefore, he pleads, do not free me. In 111, Pliny the Younger was appointed governor of Bithynia. By the way, Ignatius goes and suffered a torturous, cruel death. Pliny the Younger was appointed governor of Bithynia. This is essentially the northern part of Turkey. Trajan, again, was the emperor of Rome. Pliny writes to Trajan out of concern for how Christianity was affecting the worship of Roman gods. So Pliny, a governor, northern Turkey, in Bithynia, he writes to the emperor, says, I'm concerned about how this Christianity is affecting the worship of the Roman gods. Pliny says that pagan temples were deserted. They were empty. And those who are making a living selling animals for sacrifices aren't making money because no one's buying. So Pliny goes, Christianity is changing things here. It's affecting people. The the worship of Roman gods is not happening. People who are making money out of this are losing their jobs. I want to put into place a law that requires all men to pray to the Roman gods, to burn incense before the emperor, and to curse Christ. So it's allowed. Pliny puts this in. And if they would worship the Roman gods, if they would burn incense for the emperor, and if they would curse Christ, they would be freed. Pliny, as he began capturing and imprisoning and bringing Christians before the authorities, would give them three opportunities to recant their faith. In the midst of torture, wild beasts ripping them limb from limb, being burned alive, being beheaded, being stoned, they would be asked in the midst of this three times. They're going to give you three chances. Recant Christ. Recant Christ. Curse Christ. And if they didn't, they would be executed. Now here's what's interesting. They were not executed because they were Christian. They knew that they couldn't necessarily do this at this point. The issue was that they would not worship Roman gods and they were Roman citizens. So Pliny was finding that his methods were not working. Christians were willing to die. (laughs) And people are of the faith are increasing. The gospel is being spread. We're killing Christians and there's more of them. I thought this would fix the problem. So he writes to Trajan, this isn't working. So Trajan agreed that something needed to be done in the case of Christians who do not follow the rules and traditions of Rome. And they bring in persecution, a great persecution, over the course of the next few decades. It was then in, in 155 that Ignatius' younger friend, John's disciple Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was martyred. Here's what happened. The policy that Trajan put in effect for Pliny was still in place under now the emperor Antonius Pius. And though Christians were not sought out, if they were accused, like I mentioned before, they were condemned if they did not recant their faith and curse Christ. So here in Smyrna, here's what happened. 
It's in Smyrna that groups of Christians were brought before the authorities for refusing to worship Roman gods. What happened is they were tortured with incredible cruelty, yet they remained steadfast. Among this group in Smyrna, there is an elderly man. He watches all these tortures happen, patiently awaiting his turn. As he's brought before the authorities, the authorities told him, Old man, take into account your old age. Just curse Christ. To this he responded and looked at the authorities and said, I have no desire to continue to live in a world where the injustices that I have just seen take place. And to show his conviction, as he responds, before they even ask him two more times, he calls out for the beasts to come and kill him. The crowd was so enraged that they began crying out, Death to the atheist! Death to the atheist! Bring Polycarp! Polycarp was the old bishop. Now they wanted the leader. We got to kill the leader if we want to get rid of this flock. So the old bishop learned that he was being sought. His flock encouraged him to hide, which he did for several days. But the Roman authorities kept on finding where he is, so they moved him house to house, house to house. And after being moved from place to place, being discovered, he decided that his arrest was the will of God. So he refused to flee any further. And Polycarp, in his final destination, calmly waited for those to come after him and get him. Polycarp was taken before the authorities. They too told him, Polycarp, consider your old age. Quit the foolishness. Curse God. And then looked at them and they said, All we need you to do, all we want you to do, is cry out, Death to the atheists. Out with the atheists. We'll let you go if you just say, Out with the atheists. To which Polycarp responded, pointed at the authorities and pointed at the crowd saying, Yes, out with the atheists, out with the atheists, out with the atheists, out with the atheists. The judge told Polycarp to curse God and die, to which Polycarp responded, For 86 years I've served him, he has done me no evil, how could I curse my king who saved me? The judge threatened him and says, We'll burn you alive. Polycarp simply answered to the judge, The fire that you will light will last only a moment, whereas the eternal fire will never go out. Polycarp was tied to a post set in fire where he cried out in the middle of the flames, Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment, so that jointly with your martyrs I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this I bless and glorify you. Amen. And with his death, the church increased and the gospel flourished. It's a few years later, 161. Marcus Aurelius became emperor. Persecution continued heavily. During the early years of his reign, there, there seemed to be an endless string of invasions. There were floods, epidemics. The explanation arose to the emperor that Christians were to blame for these things. There's floods, epidemics, disease, invasions. It's the Christians. They're bringing the wrath upon us because they won't worship the gods of the empire. One of the most informative documents from this time period tells us of the martyrdom of a widow, Felicitas. She was elderly and had seven sons. She was a consecrated widow who devoted all her time to the church. The church took care of her. Her work, this this woman, this widow, her work was so effective in her city that the pagan priests hated her brought accusations of her before the authorities. They dragged her and her seven sons. They tried to persuade her to abandon her faith, but she told them, you're wasting your time. 
She spoke to the authorities and said this, While I live, I shall defeat you. And if you kill me in my death, I shall defeat you all the more. Then they tried to persuade the sons. But she encouraged her boys to stand firm. None of them flinched. Rather, she was killed and the seven boys taken to seven different sections of the city to be killed to appease the various Roman gods. You see, throughout these persecutions, the authorities and pagan priests didn't want to kill the Christians primarily. Their hope was that they would recant their faith so that others would do so and Christianity would die. It wasn't that they wanted the Christians to die. They wanted Christianity to die. But as Tertullian said so, so rightly a couple centuries later, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. It was where the gospel flourished the most. Conversions happened the most. People were emboldened, filled with courage. The church grew in the midst of persecution. There was a multiplicity of elders in cities and churches because as in the case of Polycarp, as we mentioned, bishops and leaders were brought out to death thinking if the leaders were canned or were killed, the flock would recant. There was actually one point this is, this is important. Listen to this. There's one point of persecution where a group of Christians are walking along the road. And unexpectedly, unlike the way persecution would typically happen, they weren't accused. All these Christians were enslaved and imprisoned and brought before the authorities. These Christians were not prepared for what was happening. Because of the sudden persecution, many of these Christians weakened. They recanted their faith and they ran away. Others stood firm. And the fact that these others stood firm, it enraged the authorities so much that this group of Christians was severely tortured unlike anyone had been known to that point. In the midst of these tortures, dismemberment, spears, aching, being burned alive, being stoned, wild beasts, in the midst of these men and women being persecuted, the men were calling out through the torturing, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. As they stood firm and bold, many of those who had just left them recanted their faith and ran away, came back in the midst, walked right in the midst of their torturing, professed their faith in Christ, and were killed immediately on the spot by the authorities. It was during this persecution, it was so bad that the Christians, where they were being held, awaiting their execution, it was so full that some died of suffocation before the executioners could even come and get to them. But during this time, the word of God was treasured. Romans, in Roman history, will tell you that Christians were getting up at the break of dawn, sometimes daily, to gather together, to worship together, to read together. I, we're about to read a, a couple verses in Scripture. I want you to remember this, what's happening. In the midst of this persecution, Christians are getting up early together. They're worshiping together. They're singing together. They're praying together. They're reading the word of God together. History tells us they're making copies of the word of God and circulating them. They're treasuring these letters from Peter and Paul and the gospels that they had at that point. They're eating together. They're breaking bread together. And so what's happening is, in the midst of persecution... The church is growing stronger. And now you think about a passage like Hebrews chapter 10. We've said this before. Thinking of this context, Hebrews 10, 24-25 says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, 
and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The plea was, in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this breaking, do not neglect meeting together. I know you think, excuse me, I know you think that the way to avoid this is to cease, be silent, be still, let it blow over. No, all the more as you see the day drawing near, do not neglect me together. Stir up one another to love and good works. And then a few verses later, you see beginning in verse 32, it says this, Brothers, sisters, recall the former days. I love this. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, Sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, verse 35 says this, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. You have need of endurance in suffering and infliction so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, he will not delay. My righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then verse 39 says this to these brothers and sisters. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We're not of those who recant their faith. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Preserve. Preserve. You see, they were men of faith and their souls were preserved. God is preserving his word in the midst of this persecution. You see it again in Hebrews chapter 10. God, through his word, through the fellowship of his saints, by his Holy Spirit, was preserving his church, preserving his word. The letters of the New Testament copied, circulated. It was during these persecutions that the apostolic fathers were acknowledging the New Testament. You remember this. The life of the believer, the church, was totally dependent upon the word of God. These men and women were not laying down their lives for false gods and writings. They believed what they had to be the very word of God and his gospel. And they believed it was worth dying for. We talked about this. It was during this time, AD 95, Clement of Rome had already mentioned in his writings eight New Testament books, as the scripture says. Ignatius, who was killed in Rome during these festivities, in his writings, he also quoted about seven books this is what the Lord says, what the scripture says. Polycarp, who was murdered, quoted 15 books in his letters. This is what the scripture says. In their writings, in their encouraging one another, it was based on the word of God. Irenaeus mentioned 21 books. If you remember, when we talked about the history and the reliability of the New Testament, we looked at these church fathers saying, look, they quoted from these. But you see now, they weren't quoting to say, oh, all this is scripture. Oh, this is all scripture. This is the word of God. Don't forget this word of God. No, They were encouraging their flock in the midst of persecution. The word of God says this, therefore stand strong. And then they were examples and laid down their lives. The issue at hand wasn't, hmm, what do the apocryphal writings belong in the Bible? And what does this verse say here? And how should we handle this? It was a matter of, this is the word of God. And this is what it says of how you ought to live. And if persecution slaps you in the face, lay down your life for the sake of the gospel. That's what's happening. That's what's happening in these first two centuries. When these persecutions were happening, they were heavy against the church. But there was something more dangerous happening during this time. And it was a fight over the word of God against false gospels, against false teaching, heresies, and false teachers. 
One of the leading heresies as we come to a close tonight that arose was that of Marcion. We spoke a number of weeks ago briefly about Marcion. He was brought up on the apostolic faith, and he associated the most with Paul in his writings. Love Paul. Love Paul. In fact, it was actually said of Marcion that he was the only man in the church who understood Paul. And yet, even in his understanding, he misunderstood him. You see, Marcion rejected the Old Testament. And he also removed Paul's references to the Old Testament. Or, if they were there and he missed, he would say that they had been corrupted by Judaizers. Marcion believed that the original apostles had corrupted their master's teaching with the Gospels. Not only did he reject the God of the Old Testament, but he claimed that the God of the Old Testament was a different God from that of the New Testament. Marcion actually went to Rome to teach and preach and persuade the church according to his doctrine. But the leaders in Rome rejected his teaching, so he goes and begins his own church. Here's what's amazing about Marcion's church. It lasted a few generations. You want to know why it didn't last more than a few generations? Because in order to be a member, you had to practice celibacy. <laughs> Which is just like, all right, you would, how do you expect your church to grow, but you can't have sex? Doesn't make any sense. Children were not being born in this church. He found the idea of conception and childbirth disgusting. He believed that Christ himself descended from heaven and was not born of Mary. So it, it just, again, a lunatic, totally deceived, and using the word of God as his method of deceiving. From Marcion grew an increasing trend of Gnosticism that had been around since Paul's day. The belief in such special revelation and additional knowledge that can be gained from mysticism and practice was flowing. Gnosticism was just increasing. It was appeasable, and this is why it was a very man-centered. You can be like God. You can be saved by receiving this special knowledge, this special revelation, this mysticism. This Listen, it's not, it's not hard to understand why this is more appealing than the gospel to those who are rejecting Christ, right? Hmm, join the way. I don't participate in any things of the culture, and I can't do the things that I want in the flesh, and I'll die. Or, I can receive special mystic revelation and knowledge, and I can do as I please, and God will bless me, and, and it's me, me, me. The same gospels are happening today. It, you know, what, what is more palatable? And the problem with the modern church is this. The gospel hasn't changed. You, you don't understand that, right? This, this radical gospel hasn't changed. Come and die. Deny yourself. You'll be persecuted. You'll suffer. You may be called to die for your death. Hey, you can't, do not be conformed to this world. Be renewed by the transforming, of, or be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Step aside. Don't give in the desires of the flesh and the lust. And we're saying, man, this isn't really palatable for people today. 2017 Americans, listen, pastor, I get that you're, in, you know, it's intense, yes, Jesus, yes, it's the way, but you've, you can't start with that. You're not going to get a crowd at Cornerstone Church if you preach that. Trust me, what people want today is fancy videos, dress night, give them t-shirts at the door, start off with a Led Zeppelin song, make them feel comfortable, and tell them how to have a better life. Tell them that they too can look at the trees and God speaks as the wind blows and the clouds make a cross and this means that God has saved them and it's a beautiful thing. If you do this, look, there's time. We'll get to the radical claims of the gospel. But trust me, if you start with that, you're not going to get anybody. This is what's happening. 
It's, it's what Jesus was dealing with. It's what the apostles were dealing with. Except they were the example. And what they did is they said, lies. This leads to death. Man-centeredness. False gospels. Gnosticism. This is not the gospel. Anyone who would come after Christ. He is Savior if He is Lord. He's your master. You are His doulos. And now you deny yourself daily. You take up your cross daily and you follow Him. And now out of joy for your salvation and your creating your God, you're obedient to Him. And these commandments are not burdensome. This is the gospel. But it's not what's happening then. It's not what's happening now. You look at a man named... It, it, yeah, it is important. To know as evil increased, God's providence and faithfulness continue to be shown. Because even in the midst of these heresies and false gospels, men know the truth. And the word of God is being preached and the church is multiplying. Peter said it was happening while he and Paul were alive. Here we are in our teaching tonight, a century later. Marcion's doing the same thing. Here we are 2,000 years later. People are doing the same thing. Look at what Marcion was doing with Paul's letter. What did, Paul, what did Peter say in 2 Peter 3.15-16? through 16? Paul received wisdom from God. All of his letters would be considered like scripture. But there are some tough things which men will twist to their own destruction. Peter says this about Paul in 64 AD. Here we are a century later and Marcion's doing that exact thing and basing a whole doctrine off of it. A crucial man that God raised up during this time was a man named Irenaeus. We are almost done. Irenaeus was a presbyter in the church of Lyon. He was influenced by Polycarp. Of his writings, the most popular of his work is called Against Heresies. Irenaeus was the principal spokesman against Marcion, Gnosticism, and other false teachings of the day. What he did is he would go and he would actually study these teachings. He wanted to know what was being taught, what they believed. And then he would argue against them that the true doctrine was found in the scripture which led to apostolic tradition. He argued that the Holy Spirit gave the apostles perfect knowledge, not secret knowledge, not secret tradition. And he argued that their office of apostleship and authority and revelation had ended. And what was given was sufficient for the generations to come. There is no new special revelation. There is no new authority other than what has already been laid. Irenaeus, because of his convictions, was beheaded in 202 under great persecution. Next week, we're going to go into deeper detail of actual heresies and responses, as well as the role of persecution in the church in the last two centuries of, of the patristic period. But I want to close tonight with one thought. I want to close tonight reminding us what the Lord has revealed in His Word about persecution and suffering. And I want to allow this to move us into an intentional time of discussion in small groups. I want to plead that you'd consider staying for small groups tonight. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter Paul says this, beginning in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, 
Because your faith is doing what? Notice, it is growing abundantly, okay? And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So the faith is growing abundantly. Love for one another is increasing. Hmm, I wonder what's happening. I wonder what's happening that's causing this to happen. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Wait a second. You mean that faith is growing abundantly and love for one another is increasing? What? In the midst of persecutions and afflictions? Verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Go to 2 Timothy. We're doing speed round really quick. We're going to do two more passages. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. I want you to look at verse 12. Oh, I have the wrong text here. I'm going to need to... Uh, I'm glad I went and looked. No, no, I'm right. I'm right. I was looking at the wrong thing in my Bible. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire... Say all. Now, wait a second. People will say this. People will say this. Before we finish this verse, they'll say, Paul's writing to Timothy. This is a command. Timothy's a pastor. He's a leader. He was, this was kind of an office. Timothy was a special person. The word is used what here? All. Verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Notice here. Notice, if you desire to live a what life? Godly life, you will be what? Persecuted. We're going to be discussing that small groups. One final passage. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. When it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are what? Blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Watch this. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now look at this verse, verse 17. For it is time for what? Watch this. It is time for judgment to begin where? Where is judgment beginning? At the household of God. It begins with us. And if it begins with us, what will, be, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will be, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is, this is where we end tonight. That judgment is coming. And it's coming first to the household of God. That it begins with us. Listen, this is, this is what this means. Are you ready for person? Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you. 
Judgment is beginning at the household of God. This is a warning to be prepared. When you are faced with the decision, am I going to be obedient to Christ? Or am I going to be self-centered, man-centered, and live for the lust of this world? Because what happens is Matthew 7 says, Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name, did many, many works in your name. And Jesus says to him, what? Get away from me, I never knew you. This is a warning. I want to read you one more story of persecution that needs to come into context with what we just read. It was under the reign of Decius. This was AD 249. So about 50 years after where we just ended. There was a man named Nicomachus. Nicomachus was brought before the, the proconsul as a Christian. Nicomachus was ordered to sacrifice to the pagan idols. He replies and looks at them and says this. I cannot pay that respect to devils, which is only due to the Almighty. His speech and response so much enraged the proconsul that Nicomachus was put to the rack. He began enduring torments for a long time. He was tortured so much so that he recanted his faith and cursed Christ. He had scarcely been given this proof of his frailty. Gets up and is allowed to walk away. Falls into an even greater agony. Dropped to the ground and died immediately. This man was being tortured, recanted his faith, cursed Christ, was freed, so frail, became experiencing torture worse than what was just happening, falls to the ground in his extreme pain and torture. They weren't torturing him anymore, and he dies immediately. What happens is there's a young 16-year-old girl watching this. Her name was Denisa. 16-year-old Denisa watches Nicomachus curse God and then die, beholds this terrible judgment. When she saw Nicomachus die for recanting his faith, she exclaimed, went over to this man and said, the dead man, and says, Oh, unhappy wretch! Why would you buy a moment's ease at the expense of a miserable eternity? After hearing this, the accusers called for her, avowing herself to be a Christian. She was beheaded on the spot. Do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you. Judgment, time of judgment beginning at the household of God. Men and women in these first couple centuries and throughout history were emboldened and grew in confidence by the steadfastness and faith of their brothers and sisters. You heard stories tonight of people who recanted, walked away, and were so overcome with guilt, knowing that they just cursed their Christ. They see their brothers and sisters dying, sitting firm, emboldened by this. They come back and plead for mercy before God, and they're killed on the spot. You see people who are willing to lay down their lives like the seven sons of the widow. After she looks at them and was unwilling to recant her faith for her own life and for her own seven, says, be strong, and they go faithfully because they treasured the word of God more than life themselves, and they were killed. I pray tonight that we are strengthened by the boldness, by God's grace through these testimonies, so that we are ready for persecution. That we would not neglect to meet together all the more as the day is drawing near of judgment, but that we would stir up one another love and good works.